The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. Verses 3, 4, and 5 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous men who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, I propose to look at those three striking verses with you this morning in a general manner only, feeling, as I hope to show you, that before we come to consider it in detail, it is vitally important that we should look at them as a whole and gather one great lesson at any rate, which seems to me to be taught here so clearly and which is needed so badly at this present hour. As we approach that, however, uh, I cannot but make this kind of general remark, this word but. But, he says, fornication and all uncleanness and so on. Now, he's contrasting, he's going on to contrast something with that which he's already been saying. And what he's already been saying, you remember, is what is to be found in the first two verses. Be ye therefore imitators of God, as children beloved, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. But, and at once you feel you've got to move into a different atmosphere. And as I contemplated this statement, I confess that I came in a way to understand the feelings of the Apostle Peter and the Mount of Transfiguration in a way that I'd never understood them before. You remember the story, don't you? Our Lord took up Peter and James and John up unto that mountain and there he was transfigured before, before them and spoke to Moses and to Elias. And Peter was so enjoying the whole situation. He said, Lord, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Why did he want to put up tents? Well, because he wanted to stay there. He'd never seen anything like this before. Neither had any of them. Seeing the Lord thus, in his glory, seeing the appearance of Moses and Elias, this was to Peter heaven, and what could be better than to put up tents and stay there and remain in the wonderful enjoyment of it all. But he wasn't allowed to do so. And why wasn't he allowed to do so? Well, the answer is this, you see. There they were upon the mountain in this rarefied, glorious atmosphere. Yes, but the world was still there at the foot of the mount. Indeed, at that very moment, there was a poor man there with a lunatic son. 
And he'd come in desperation to the disciples asking if they could help. So our Lord doesn't stay in the enjoyment there on top of the mountain. He leads them down. And there they come down and find a great disputation going on, wrangling and arguing. Everything as it were at cross purposes. But there it is. They were not allowed to stay on top of the mountain, build and put up the tents. They have to go down to the plains and back again to the facts of life and the stark and ugly realities of life in this world as the result of sin. And that's exactly what we are told by this little word, but. Oh, how excellent and delightful it would be, I confess for me myself at any rate, to go on with verses 1 and 2. Looking at God and our relationship to him. Realizing his love to us that we are not only his children, but dearly beloved children. And contemplating the Lord Jesus Christ and all he has done for us. The glories of the doctrine of the atonement that we were looking at last Sunday morning. Oh, how wonderful to go on ever always like that and in that atmosphere. But we mustn't do that. We've got to follow the scriptures. And if we learn nothing else this morning, we must at any rate learn this. That we really must take the scriptures as a whole. I know of nothing more dangerous to the life of the soul than to be reading always only favorite passages. It's not only dangerous to the soul, it's an abuse of scripture. We must follow the scriptures wherever they may lead us or take us. There are many people today I know who say, Oh, I don't like this negative aspect of the truth. Why can't we keep to the positive always? Very well, you keep to it. And you'll soon discover where you find yourself. We must take the scripture as it is. Not simply take what we like and what pleases us. We must submit ourselves to it utterly and absolutely and follow it every step of the way. Christianity, in other words, is something which is very practical. And if we don't realize that, we've completely misunderstood the scriptures. We are, of course, the children of God. Thank God for all we've been learning in verses 1 and 2. And we are to be like Christ and to walk as he walked in love. Yes. And the scripture is so anxious that we should walk in a manner worthy of our Father in heaven and of Jesus Christ who has identified himself with us that it takes great pains to bring us to that and so it instructs us in detail both negatively and positively. Now then, we've had the positive, we are now coming to the negative. And the message is this, of course, that there are certain things which we as the children of God must never do. We must realize that there are certain things which are utterly incompatible with our life as the dear children of God and as those who are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well, I say, here we come to the negative. Yes, it's the negative again. People don't like negatives. And I say that the extent to which you don't like negatives is the measure of your spirituality. Because that is the whole object here to show the importance of the negative. So let us approach it like this. 
Are these negatives really necessary? Isn't it enough just to give us the positive? Isn't it just enough just to remind us that we are these beloved children of God and that Christ, as it were, has come to us and he's the firstborn amongst many brethren. We're in that family. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough for us just to contemplate our glorious position? Won't that solve all our problems? The answer is no. The negative is painfully essential, and for these reasons. The first is that we need to be constantly reminded, unfortunately, that the one grand end and object of Christianity and of salvation and of the Christian life is to make us holy. Now, there's no excuse for us, neither was there for these Ephesians, and yet we need the reminder. Listen to the apostle putting it in the first chapter of this epistle, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What for? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is the end and object of the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the Christian faith. But we are also subjective. We want this and that. We've got trouble, so we want guidance. We want things to happen miraculously to us. We think that that's Christianity. Doing this, that, and the other for me, it is not primarily. Thank God it includes that. But we must never lose sight of this, that the primary object of Christianity is to make us holy and unblameable in the presence of God. Now, take this apostle saying it again in his uh, epistle to Titus in the second chapter, where he says something like this, who gave himself for us. What for? Well, that he might separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's it. It was in order to do that, not simply to save us from hell and to give us forgiveness, but to separate unto himself. This peculiar people, this people for his own peculiar possession, and that, that is their characteristic, that they deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and all these things, and they're zealous of good works. We always need to be reminded of that, because unfortunately, as the result of the sin that remains in us and the fall, we are always reducing the ultimate end and objective of the Christian faith. We must ever be reminded of it, so the negative becomes essential. Let me give you a second reason. There is always the danger, in much the same way, of not applying the Christian truth to ourselves, but of simply being content with enjoying it in a theoretical manner. That can be done very easily. What is there more enjoyable than a great exposition of truth, such as we have in this epistle by the Apostle? It's a great intellectual feast, a great intellectual treat. I say, what, what is easier, therefore, than just to take it in general and to say how marvelous, how wonderful, and never apply it to ourselves at all? We've all done it. We're all guilty of it. We can take the thing purely intellectually and never apply it to ourselves at all. 
Because of that, we need to be brought right down to earth. We need the negatives. Then, putting it in another form as a third point, there, there is always the danger of antinomianism. And you see, the danger of antinomianism is this, isn't it? We've just been reading that he gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Very well, we say we are saved and we are safe. If he's done that for us, he'll never let us go. Then that becomes interpreted in this way. Well, it doesn't matter very much therefore what I do. If my ultimate salvation is certain and assured, I can live as I like. That's antinomianism. Some of the first Christians fell into that. Christians of all are always falling into that. And antinomianism is the particular danger of men and women who have the greatest understanding of the truth. A man who believes in justification by works is never in danger of antinomianism. It is the peculiar danger of a man who understands doctrine and who is interested in it and who sees this glorious aspect especially of our being chosen and elected and our assurance and our final safety. The devil tempts him along the lines of antinomianism. The apostle knows that. So having given the positive, he says, but, and comes down to details in the negative. The fourth reason is this. We ever need to be reminded that our Christianity and our profession of the Christian faith is something that is meant to show itself in every single detail and item of our life. Christianity is not something to be enjoyed only in a place of worship, or when we are reading about it in the Bible or books about it. It is to show itself in the most ordinary details of life, in everything that we do. That's why he again goes into details, you see, and tells us even about our ordinary conversation knowing perfectly well that it's one thing to listen to an exposition of truth in a church such as this and then go out and immediately start talking in a frivolous and flippant manner and perhaps even worse. So he has to tell us not to do that. That that is a very poor grasp of Christian truth that only operates when we are listening to it and doesn't manifest and reveal itself everywhere, always, wherever we are and whatever the company, whatever we may chance to be doing. It's to show itself everywhere in our lives. So he has to be negative, and he has to put it in detail. And then lastly, I would give this as my fifth reason. We always need to be reminded also that the Christian life is the fight of faith. Fight of faith. It isn't something that happens to you once and forever. And because you become a Christian, you've got no, lo no longer any problems. No, no. The apostle says it is the fight of faith. He's very concerned about this in the last chapter of this great epistle. We shall find this. We are exhorted to put on the whole armor of God. Christian people. Why? Well, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He says there's only one way to succeed. There's only one way to stand in the evil day. You must put on the whole armor of God. No, no. 
We mustn't regard the Christian life as something that you receive in one great experience. You never have any problems anymore. You never have another temptation. You never again fall to sin. You're absolutely perfect. It all happened. Not at all. It is the fight of faith. And we need the whole armor of God. We've got to watch and pray. We've got to realize we are surrounded by enemies and foes, seen and unseen, and they're within us. And the whole time we have to be on guard. So the apostle illustrates that by taking up these particular things that are dangerous to the soul and showing us negatively their utter incompatibility with the Christian life and the Christian profession. Very well, there's uh, one's first general reaction to this word but and the introduction of the negatives again. Oh, I'm no longer on the Mount of Transfiguration, but I'm looking... At this lunatic boy, I'm down in the dull plains of life. I'm back to the hard reality of life and living. I wish I could stay up there, but I can't. That awaits me in glory. I've got to live in this world first. I've got to get on and get through with it. But, my second comment is this. And it is indeed to this that I want to pay great attention this morning. One cannot but notice the Apostle's method of dealing with these moral questions. You notice, don't you, at once, as is his invariable custom. He deals with these problems of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, and all the rest of them, entirely in terms of his Christian doctrine. Did you notice the terms? as becometh saints, which are not convenient, which by which he means again, it isn't becoming, it doesn't fit, it doesn't suit. And then specifically, this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's because of that kingdom, not the kingdoms of this earth that he's concerned about these things. It's doctrinal. Saints, becoming, convenient, Kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, you'll never find in the New Testament any appeal to people to be moral on the grounds that we are so familiar with. You've left home for the first time and you promised your father and mother that you won't do certain things. Now don't break your promise. Remember what you promised your parents. You'll never find that in the Bible at all. That's the world. It isn't Christianity. No, no, this is because we are saints. It's because we're in the kingdom of Christ and of God and the things that are becoming in that realm. So the New Testament is interested in morality not because of the honor of the school or the honor of the country or the good of mankind, not a bit. Saints, citizens of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Secondly, it's not interested in morality in and of itself. It's not interested in morality as an ideal. It's not interested in sins in and of themselves and because they're bad and because of their evil consequences and nefarious results. Not at all. There's nothing about that here at all. It is all that it's incompatible with who we are. It applies to Christian people only, nobody else. Now we must understand these principles, otherwise we should be misinterpreting the scripture. But let me put it like this, to be intensely practical. You notice that the apostle doesn't go into these sins in detail, 
and then denounce them. Analyze them and expose them and give statistics. Proving how people who take to drink or who do this, that or the other, there are your results. And they produce great statistics. Now I'm putting it in that form for this reason. There are many uh, societies in the world today that are concerned about the moral situation. And they always put it in terms of statistics. You see, they say, now look here, so much is spent on drink and on tobacco every year, and yet people are complaining that, they, that so much is spent on the National Health Service and so on. That's a part of your moral argument, you see. Then uh, you look at it from the standpoint of disease, that people who are guilty of these things look at the consequences. It's all perfectly true. All I'm saying is that the apostle doesn't do that at all. It, is, it simply isn't here. It's nowhere in the Bible anywhere. And he doesn't just denounce these things in and of themselves and lash at them. Now, I'm calling attention to this. Because it does seem to me to be urgently important at this hour. That we should try to become clear in our minds as to the relationship of the Christian church to moral problems and moral organizations in the world. Now, I have many reasons for saying this. There are, as I say, morality councils. I received a letter only a fortnight ago from a high church dignitary asking me to attend a meeting of the morality council and to advertise it and so on. Well, I believe in a sense it's owing to you that I should tell you why I'm not going and why I don't do such things and why I don't have a temperance Sunday and then a moral Sunday and all these various other Sundays and take part in these organizations and activities. Now, we must, I say, be clear about this. You are aware of morality councils, temperance associations, and various other societies to look after this interest and that, and the whole time it is this great concern in the moral situation. Well, of course, we must be concerned about the moral situation. But to me it is very urgent that we should be clear as to how we should be concerned and what part we are to play in all this. Now, this last week, an important series of meetings has been held. The Magistrates Association meetings have been held in London and they've been addressed by various people. And here in the reports of these meetings, very important meetings, I notice this same element of confusion. For instance, take statements made by a man like Mr. R.A. Butler, whom I believe is a practicing Christian. He says things like this. Mr. Butler said that the prevention of crime called for understanding and action by society as a whole. All right. Turning to the insolence and apparent disregard for justice, which is prevalent among our young people of a certain age today, you see, young people particularly, though in the same paper quite near, I see a lady in a distinguished position in the 50s, fined 20 pounds and 15 guineas cost for stealing in one of our stores here in London. But you see, it's juvenile delinquency now. And we are concentrating on this. We depend, he said, upon the courts and the police and all the other different agencies to work with us in free synthesis and thus to strive to work for and defend liberty. Any attempt to change that system would, I am sure, be an inroad on liberty. And then he ends like this. He says, my appeal is to a wider audience to the churches, to parents and to teachers to do their part in dealing with the problem of juvenile crime. Without them, we're all powerless. 
Now, there I suggest to you is this characteristic confusion of confusion that is not confined only to statesmen. But alas, this confusion is in the church herself. And it is in order to try to indicate the danger of this confusion that I'm calling your attention to this subject this morning. And the apostle compels us to do so. For his way of approaching the situation is not the one that I've just been representing to you. Very well then, how do I justify my contention that the church is not to be interested in the way indicated? And that this appeal from the statesmen to the church and the teachers and the parents and all the rest of it is a complete misunderstanding of the scriptures? Well, let's approach it like this. First of all, I would ask this question. What have all these movements and organizations really achieved? Now, we've multiplied such organizations and institutions since about the middle of the last century. It was one of the great characteristics of the Victorians to start these movements and societies and organizations. And as some of us who don't participate in these things and who don't have our temperance Sundays and our morality Sundays and so on are often criticized for not taking part in such good works, we must, I say, justify ourselves. So I ask that question. What have they achieved? We've never had so many. What have they achieved in the matter of temperance? What have they achieved in the matter of morality? Look at the facts. Why are we so concerned about these problems? Why does Mr. Butler thus tell this society of magistrates of the appalling position? He says there are 5,000 people now sleeping, three in a cell in our prisons, the highest figure on record. It's never been so high before. And in spite of all these societies and these special Sundays and appeals and the money that is given to them, isn't it about time we asked, what do these moral efforts really achieve? Forgive me for putting it in a personal way. I once was constrained to put this in uh, an assembly of the church to which I belonged. We were attending a synod. And uh, in one of the sessions, the secretary of the temperance and morality uh, committee of the denomination was presenting his annual report. A very zealous man, always preaching about temperance, and indeed uh, always insistent that we should have a temperance Sunday. And he always sent out a circular letter, which was to be read from every pulpit in the denomination on that particular Sunday. Well, now, in this particular session of this assembly, this good man was presenting his annual report, and he made a violent attack upon various ministers in the church whom he'd been told never read the letter at all and didn't have a temperance Sunday. And he waxed eloquent and we were severely castigated. It seemed to me that there was only one thing to do. And with great fear and trembling I ventured to do it. I simply put a question to him. I said, what I'd like to know is this. How many drunkards have been turned into sober men, leave alone saints, as the result of your activities. I said, I just ask you and I challenge you. 
to mention the number of men whom you can say as the result of your efforts, and he lived for this temperance question, always preached about it. It always came into every sermon. I knew full well, of course, that he couldn't produce a single case. I said, you produce your figures, and then I will produce figures of men who have been turned from being hopeless drunkards into saints and sober men. In churches where your letter is never read and where a temperance Sunday is never observed. I think that's fair. Before we give our time and our energy and give our Sundays, which are meant for the preaching of the gospel, to such activities, we are entitled to ask what does all this lead to. I would have thought that the moral state of this country today shows that there is a sense in which all such activities are just futile. You cannot persuade people in this way for the very good reason that the New Testament doctrine of sin shows the thing is impossible. And so on with all these other societies. I, I, I like many of the men who belong to them. I know they're honest and sincere men. But I n never speak on their platforms. Not even the Lord's Day Observance Society. Because you can't make a man observe the Lord's Day by act of Parliament. That's not the way to do it. Very well, let me proceed. The second point I would make is this. That all this is not a part of the church's business as such. And here I feel the confusion comes in as between the realm of the church and the realm of the state. The church is appointed and ordained of God. So is the state, says the apostle in Romans 13 and elsewhere. They're both appointed by God. God is working in this world today in these two realms, the realm of the church, the realm of the state. God has appointed the state, the magistrates, the powers that be, and all the rest of it. Now, they're both meant to work in their given way, and there is never meant to be any confusion between them. And as I see the position today, this is largely the trouble, that the people who ought to be preaching the gospel are preaching politics and morality, and those whose business it is to handle politics and morality are trying to preach. And so there is utter confusion, and both realms are failing to carry out the thing for which God has ordained them. What do I mean? I mean something like this. The Christian church is not a moral agency. What is she then? She's a converting agency. She's a regenerating agency. She's not a moral agency. There are many other moral agencies. The church is not. She's supernatural. She's divine. She's filled with the Spirit. She converts men. She regenerates men. I say she. She's used of God to do it. That is her realm. Let me put it secondly. The church is not out to produce good men. The church is out to produce new men. And a new man is infinitely bigger than a good man. You can be a good man without being a Christian at all. The church is not out to say to produce moral men. She's out to produce what he calls here saints. And if you haven't got hold of that distinction, my dear friend, you don't know what Christianity is. Of course the Christian's a good man and a moral man, but if you simply describe him as that, you're insulting him. You're not describing him. The Christian is a saint. He's a regenerate man. He's a child of God. He belongs to Christ. He's in Christ. We are not in the realm of morality and goodness. We are in the realm of sainthood and of the Spirit. 
And therefore I argue that the acceptance of a moral agency role by the church means that the church of necessity misrepresents her own message. And that is why, I'm sorry to have to say it, I cannot pay any attention to the appeal of Mr. R.A. Butler. It is insulting to the Christian church. It is failing to understand what she is and what she is meant to do. That appeals to her as you appeal to school teachers and parents and various other people to try to deal with the problem of juvenile delinquency. Let's be clear about this. The church is not a department of state. And it seems to me while there is this union between church and state, this, this confusion is bound to persist. But we must reject it with the whole of our being. It is a final misunderstanding of the nature of the church. She is not just a moral agency. Erastianism is in a sense a denial of the Christian message. The, the state is not above the church. A church is not just one of the activities of the state. We don't belong to that realm in the church. It is the kingdom of Christ and of God. And we must ever fight for this distinction. So I would work it out like this in detail. The church's message is essentially a positive message, put negatively in order to emphasize the positive, but essentially it is a positive message. What I mean is this, that the business of the Christian preaching is not merely to restrain and to prevent sin. And yet, you see, when the Christian church preaches morality and goes into these movements, she puts herself into that position. She's negative. And I know of nothing that is doing such harm to the Christian church and to the Christian gospel today as this impression that is given that the church's business is always to be protesting about this or that. Young people especially who are not converted, they say the Christian church. If you go to church, you'll simply have to listen to somebody denouncing atomic bombs or the, talking about the race question or denouncing drink or denouncing tobacco or denouncing this, that or the other. And they say the church is negative, always prohibiting things and holding it down. And the result is they won't even listen to the gospel. It's a complete misrepresentation of the church and her message. Let me show you how positive it is. If we remain on that moral level only or give the impression that the church is one of the agencies which the state is going to use in order to deal with the problem of juvenile delinquency and so on, well then I say the church is leaving out the greatest thing of all. And what is that? Well, it's this, our relationship to God. Quite right, the Home Secretary and others are satisfied with having good moral conditions, that men stop doing this or that. That's perfectly all right in their sphere. But not so the New Testament. A man may not be guilty of any one of these delinquencies, and yet the New Testament says that he's as bad as a man who lives in a gutter. What is it then? Well, it is a man's relationship to God. And as I'm never tired of asserting, I am not at all sure, but that the most dangerous people to the gospel today are your good moral men, your good pagans. They feel they don't need the gospel. They're doing it all themselves. They don't give way to intemperance in any shape or form. They're paragons of all the virtues. Yes, but the New Testament says they're as damned as the drunkard. And says that if that isn't right, that all these other things don't matter. 
Or let me put it like this, if the church remains at that moral agency level only, she's leaving out of her message the most glorious and vital thing of all. What is that? Well, it is this dynamic. It is the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says Paul to the Romans. Why? Because it's got great moral uplift value in it? Not at all. It is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. It can come to a man and not merely address a moral appeal to him. It lays hold upon him. It puts new life into him. It changes him. It makes a new man of him. The dynamic, it's not mentioned. If we simply talk about goodness as such and the importance of observing laws and being moral and not doing this and that, we are not emphasizing the dynamic. So I argue finally that to do that kind of thing is a waste of the church's time. While the church is spending her time in preaching on the negatives, she is neglecting this positive message which alone can deal and does deal with the very problem that such people are facing. Now, this to me is of the last importance. I maintain that if I spent my Sundays in this pulpit preaching on these different days that are appointed and these good causes and societies and so on, I would be wasting God's time and the time of the church for this reason, that while I'm doing that, I cannot be preaching this positive message of salvation and deliverance. And you notice that I go further and I say this, that there is nothing in the end that can deal with this problem but the dynamic, the spiritual power of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Let me illustrate what I mean. Take the 18th century, the early part of the 18th century. The moral conditions in this country then were even worse than they are today. Read a book like Before and After Wesley by Wesley Breedy. He talks about Wesley. He happens to be a Methodist, but it's, he's referring to the evangelical awakening as a whole. Read of the conditions here in London and elsewhere. There were efforts being made then to deal with the problem. They did nothing. Suddenly came this evangelical awakening with the, the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. The Holy Spirit poured out in revival. What happened? The moral conditions were changed. Not entirely, but the change is almost incredible. That is how it happened then. It had already happened at the time of the Reformation. It had happened in a sense in much the same way in the 17th century as the result of the Puritans. It happened also in a great extent in the 19th century. It is, you see, when the church preaches this gospel as the power of God, as spiritual dynamic that can operate in men and change them, it's then she deals with the social problem, not when she's talking about the social problem and giving statistics and making moral appeals. So it's a waste of time, and we must reject it as a temptation from the devil. I don't hesitate to say that. The devil's perfectly happy as long as the church is just reading Sunday by Sunday little moral essays, trying to give a little moral uplift and making an appeal to people to be decent. I'm certain that at such times the devil rejoices because he knows that his kingdom will not be affected. Very well then, what is the relationship of the church to this moral situation? I suggest therefore it is this. The church deals directly with the moral situation in the preaching of a gospel that can convert and change men. Secondly, 
by producing Christians in number, it affects the life of the state also in this way. The trouble today is that you can't get these things passed by acts of parliament. Why? Well, the Christian vote is so small. The Christians are but 10% of the community, 5% only practicing. And the powers that be know perfectly well that they can ignore the Christian church, and they are ignoring the Christian church. They're interested in votes. They're interested in the majority. They've got their eye on the election. And all of them, in all parties, it's true of them all. They're not paying attention to us. We don't count. But, you see, last century, as the result of that great awakening and revival of the 18th century and then the revival of 1858 and 59, there were so many Christians in this country that statesmen had to pay attention to the Christian vote. So the so-called nonconformist vote. It was as powerful as this, that Charles Stuart Parnell was really driven out of public life by the nonconformist vote. That means there were so many such people that the state had to listen. Therefore, if you want to help the state, if I want to help the state, my way of doing it is this is preaching a gospel which is going to produce so many Christians that the state will have to pay attention to what we say. But you see, as long as you're preaching morality, not only does the state not listen, but you're not producing Christians. And the traditions that came down from grandfather to father and to son are gradually dying out. People are no longer influenced by these arguments at all. And your churches are empty. And the Christian view doesn't count at all. So if I want to help the state, this is my way. To try and fill the state with Christian believers, new men and women in Christ Jesus. That's the way to help the state. I say that everything else is the business of the state. It's the sphere of the state. Appointed by God to do a certain work. But the two tasks, as we must see, are very different. Christian men and women should play their part in the state. Let Christian men and women go on to councils, let them go into parliament, let them do everything they can to influence the enactments of the state. Think of people like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury. That's the way to do it. Not for people to be wasting the time on Sundays and in pulpits in talking about these things. No, no, no. It is to preach to the Wilberforces and the Shaftesburys, to encourage them, to build them up in the faith, to give them confidence. Then they go into parliament, they speak, they act. They organize movements. It is the laymen who are to do this, not the church. But what is the state to do? I said there was great confusion. There has been this confusion for a long time. Preachers, I say, are talking politics. Politicians are trying to give some sort of lay sermons instead of talking politics. What is the state to do? Well, I think the apostle makes it quite clear there in Romans 13. It is the business of the state to deal with these matters by laws and enactments. It is to prevent crime, to control crime as far as possible by every legitimate legal method. Yes, it is the business of the state to punish crime. The magistrate beareth not the sword in vain. But you notice the modern argument. It's all because of this confusion of doctrine. Ah, oh, we mustn't punish, we are told. If we're only kind to thugs and these cowardly persons who attack children and old women, if we're only kind to them and speak kindly to them, we'll gradually make better men of them. 
That's just a complete misunderstanding of the doctrine of sin and the biblical doctrine of the state. No, no, the state is to punish. People are to be kept under law until they come under grace. It is as idle and as futile to go and talk in a sweetly reasonable manner and to make moral appeals to a man who's governed by evil and lust and vice. As it was for the late Mr. Neville Chamberlain to go and do a similar thing with a man like Hitler. No, no, the state is not to be preaching. The state is to use the sword, it is to govern, it is to pass acts of parliament, it is to punish. And to teach men that if they will not respond to this view of life, well then they'll be punished if they don't. Under law until you come under grace. Grace and law cannot be mixed. They don't belong to the same realm. But people say, surely you're going too far, you're too extreme. Why should the church be opposed to these movements that are doing so much good? I see, if you make doing good the end, well then I say you must go into everything. I've got to admit that Christian science does a great deal of good. I've known people stop drinking as the result of Christian science. I've known people who are desperate warriors ceasing to worry. Am I therefore to preach Christian science and to support it? Of course I'm not. We are interested in truth. We are not concerned simply about things that do good. What we desire is that men should be brought into this new relationship. They must become saints, children of God. That's our business. The other is the realm of the state. And let it continue with its activities. But let there be no confusion of thought. Otherwise, both realms will be failing. And I cannot but feel that it is because the state for 20 to 30 years, has begun to think of itself as a reforming institution and body that we are having this increase in crime, partly. The state is to bear the sword. It is to punish. It is to teach people in that method if they won't listen to any other. You've tried education and culture and all these things and all our societies. There's the problem. Let the state exercise its proper function. Let it cease to try to preach and let the church go on performing her function. What is that? Well, it is this. We start by a realization of the problem of sin. And the moment you realize the nature of the problem of sin, how deep-seated and violent it is, you will realize at once that moral suasion never can work and never has worked. It is because of the nature of sin that the Son of God had to leave heaven and go to that cross that we were considering last Sunday morning. Very well, realizing the problem and the nature of sin, our business, I say, is to go on preaching the gospel in all its fullness. What else? Oh, this, I think today is the most important thing of all. We are to pray for revival. We are but few voices. We are but a small company, 5%. What do we need? We need an authentication of our message which will attract the world, not attract attract the attention of the world. Arrest it. We need a repetition of that which happened in the 18th century and other centuries. And when the church is experiencing revival, men and women will be changed and converted in large numbers. There'll be more Christians in the country and they'll influence the whole life of the state. You always get these. Read your history. You always get this periodicity. After a great revival in the church, 
the whole moral life of the nation is elevated for a number of years. Then the influence of the revival wanes. Down goes the moral condition. Then you get another revival, and there is this impact upon the whole life of the community. Invariably it happens. So we must pray for revival, preach a full gospel, plead with God to visit us and give us power. And in the meantime, let individual Christians play their parts as citizens, as members of the state. Let them do it, not the church. Let them do it as citizens, exert their influence, do all they can. I'm not criticizing these efforts. It is the confusion of the realms I'm criticizing. And if we can but get men and women again to realize how separate the two realms are and how different their functions and their objectives, I believe that under God's good hand we shall see this modern terrible problem of juvenile delinquency and immorality all along the line in all classes and in all ages dealt with in God's own manner, the manner he has used throughout the ages and the centuries. Well, there it is. The apostle, you notice here, in verses 3, 4, and 5 of this fifth chapter, does not spend his time in denouncing the sins and giving statistics and showing the evil effects of alcohol and sexual promiscuity and so on. Not a bit of it. As becometh saints. Unbecoming. Not convenient. Such things will never be allowed in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Oh, may God give us grace to think these things through, to have a clear understanding of them, that we may function as God intends us to function, to his glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.